Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, um, <clears throat> I always enjoy coming here to the Monday, uh, Monday, to the, uh, okay, this is planet Earth, right? Uh, to the Wednesday morning um, group. I think I'm a bit more awake in the morning. Giving a Dharma talk or uh, sharing the Dharma in the morning is uh, <clears throat> enlivening for me. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> this last year, Jack uh, Cornfield um, came out with a book called uh, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. It's a great title about after people having awakening experiences, integrating that and dealing with their daily life. Well, I want to um, talk about a subject today that uh, I guess I could, uh, I have in mind is being called After the Honeymoon, the Marriage. <laughs> <clears throat> also talking about practice. <clears throat> when people first <coughs> come into the Dharma and either through uh, a class or through maybe coming to um, a day long um, start seeing the possibilities of another way of relating to life or have their first experience of uh, retreat intensive practice. That's particularly uh, a common time for there to be this such gratitude and inspiration and openness to the possibilities that you fall in love with the Dharma. Have you experienced that? And that first phase, that falling in love phase, it's incredible. It's, um, it gives one um, great possibilities where perhaps there weren't there before. And this is um, often called the honeymoon phase. And I know that this was, uh, I had a particularly strong honeymoon. Sometimes your, the, the, the power of your honeymoon depends on the depth of your suffering before <laughs> you've come. <clears throat> and in, the, uh, in, the Buddha's, um, in one of the Buddha's lists, uh, which is esoterically called Transcendental Dependent Arising, uh, <laughs> That can impress your friends. Huh? Um, the, uh, the list is different causative factors to freedom. And the first uh, aspect or the first link in this list is the fact that suffering is or can be and is a causative factor for faith. That when, you, when your heart is, is broken, and when there's, uh, when you let go of, when you have to, there's no holding on to anything, there can sometimes be an openness to look for um, new ways of, of relating to life. And particularly if you come in contact with the teachings and see the possibility of not only understanding suffering, but coming to the end of suffering. This is what the Buddha taught then that can really lead you to deep faith. doesn't always. Obviously, sometimes suffering can lead us to embitterness, contraction, fear. And there's many people in the world, obviously, who have uh, gone that route. But it can also go the other way, as probably a number of people here can attest. 
sometimes whether or not you're in touch with uh, the, uh, the Buddha Dharma, ha going through an intense trauma can shake up your, uh, your way of being and open you up to faith. You know, you hear all the stories of born-again Christians or in, in other religions. So when that happens, that suffering leading to faith, there's a, a tremendous openness that occurs. This is what I'm talking about around the honeymoon. And for myself, I, I recall um, when I first was exposed to the teachings, this was in uh, 1974, the summer of 1974. I was um, 27. Um, I pretty much had resigned myself to being, um, being driven by my neurotic thought patterns for the rest of my life. When I heard the teachings, um, when Joseph Goldstein was teaching this class the first year at Naropa Institute. I was so excited. It was like that summer I was walking on air, you know, and I, I just, you know, it, it was the turning point in my life. Okay. And then I uh, went home to New York where I was living and there was no uh, community really to speak of and um, didn't have a whole lot of people to, to connect with. And I, I remember practicing very diligently. Um, oh, and I had done actually a retreat shortly after that, um, that summer. That, uh, in the fall, there was a retreat in Great Barrington, 1974. And that really gave me the taste of what this possibility is, is about. And by the way, if you haven't done a retreat, I, I really encourage you to because you get a whole other level of understanding of, of the power of the practice and how it works. But after that retreat, I uh, came back <clears throat> and I was a school teacher in New York and going through living on my own in a, um, an apartment in Flushing, Queens for any New Yorkers around, practicing diligently every day but going through my um, typical hibernation in the winter of New York. <clears throat> and um, from this joy, from this incredible opening and inspiration, um, the honeymoon started to fade. And uh, I got really... Um, isolated, hungry for, for community, for sangha, um, and confused as well. Because in those first few uh, months, I really got, or I thought I got, <laughs> that all you had to do was to be mindful. You know, that's what I was told that's what I actually experienced when I sat down to, to pay attention and see through the confusions there and see through the thoughts and get in touch with the feelings and it really worked. So for those, actually those first few months as I came back to, uh, to my friends and my life, I was shouting out the good news. All you've got to do is be mindful, you know, to most anyone who would hear. And my friends would kind of slink away from me and, yeah, right, okay, I don't know what he's into, but uh, I think I'll keep my distance. Um, and then I, um, I experienced the end of that honeymoon, at least for that period of time. And then came uh, the beginning of the marriage, which isn't as much fun as a honeymoon if, for, for those of you who are married. Actually, as I, I was sitting here this morning, I remembered uh, that Sylvia gave me some fabulous advice when I was uh, about to get married. This was uh, in 1982. We were good friends at that time. We go back a long ways. And, uh, and she said, just want you to know, uh, if things get a little bumpy, 
don't worry, the first 15 years are the hardest. <laughs> it was great advice. Oh, on my 15th anniversary, uh, on our first 15th anniversary, uh, my wife and I really celebrated that one, saying, we made it. You know? And there was some wisdom to it, because it not only is it true, but it, it gives some space to go through whatever you need to go through and not be scratching your head saying, you know, what is wrong here? You know, I was so in love with you and you're not the person I thought you were. Well, the same can happen with our relationship to our practice. You know, it's not what I thought it would be. And it can be um, very discouraging and despairing. How many people here, I'm curious, um, have gone through that honeymoon period? Uh, or actually, I should say it this way. Is there anyone who's recently come to practice who might be in that honeymoon period now? And it can, it can be anywhere from, you know, a few months to a, a, a couple of years, you know. So it's not that there's a limited amount of time. Uh, how many people have gone through that honeymoon period and are in the marriage now? Okay. And for some people, it can be a kind of slow relationship where there isn't really a honeymoon, but you just kind of, it's based on, a, on a, uh, an ongoing, developing relationship to uh, spiritual life. Another honeymoon come in the midst of it all. <laughs> yes. And this is another thing I want to talk about. Yeah, you go through a honeymoon period, you know, and then it, um, and then things change, and then you get re-inspired. And in fact, that is the common nature of the process. But when it gets when there is that first shift, first I'll talk about that, when there's that first shift from openness, inspiration, joy to confusion and back to where you were before, um, it's, it's very uh, discouraging. There's a saying in, uh, in India, I love this saying, even a 93-year-old saint isn't safe. <laughs> you kind of think you finally got it figured out yes okay life is just what it is it is moving through me I am one with everything and boom in one moment you can identify with your thought or with the fact that you've achieved something and be cast down into the, the depths of, of despair. <clears throat> so um, dealing with this, this marriage, with this relationship, I remember um, Trungpa Rinpoche, who's this very um, mm, uh, one-of-a-kind, crazy wisdom teacher, um, who, but very quotable. And uh, one thing he said was, you know, having, uh, being in practice is like having a love-hate relationship with your zafu. You know? <laughs> a love, or your chair, if you're not a, a cushion sitter. It's, at different times, you will have different ways of, of relating to the sitting. You know? Oh! I can't wait to get to that cushion. So quiet and peaceful. And then there's other times, I don't want to go there. What am I going to find? What am I going to be encountering? And so knowing that it's having that love-hate relationship, like any strong relationship, it kind of gives you some, um, some willingness to go through it all. Another line that, that I, I remember him saying, um, kind of pointing to the same thing, he says, um, he said, if there's a conflict between you and the Dharma, chances are the problem doesn't lie with the Dharma. <laughs> and this is a, it's a very useful thing to understand because sometimes we can blame 
our spiritual life for our problems. We can blame the Dharma or you feel guilty because you haven't sat for a, you know, for a few days or for a few weeks and then the very thing that inspired you becomes a source of shame or guilt or despair. You know, a lot of times people uh, come to retreat and they fill out a questionnaire an interview, well, you have to fill out an interview sheet and it says describe your current sitting practice or describe past practice and retreats and they list like, you know, 15 different retreats. Describe current sitting practice, zero. I'm really hoping to get back into it. And they come often into, uh, into the interviews with that big question. It's so hard for me to get into into practice these days, so I've ho I'm hoping this retreat will jumpstart it. And that um, relationship with the Dharma has, has become something that's kind of painful and discouraging. Well, to remember that the chances are the problem doesn't lie with the Dharma is really seeing that not only is the suffering sourced in yourself, but the potential to transform that suffering is also right in here. You don't have to wait for somebody to come and zap you. You don't have to wait for um, somehow grace to, uh, to be bestowed upon you again. It all has to do with our inner world and our attitude and our relationship. Just like with any relationship, if you're in a, a committed relationship, if you don't go through highs and lows, it's very unusual. You know, I'm not saying it can't happen, but if there's just this constant, oh, we're doing fine, everything is fine, you know, there's possibly a bit of denial going on there too. And that's because everything changes. And the, part, the beauty of a marriage, and I'm, as I said, I'm in a committed relationship, is not that it stays as dazzling and romantic as it was when you first met. That's just dopamine and endorphins going and, you know, that, that, that keep the procreation process together and, mm, okay, here we are, let's get together, you know but that it evolves into a depth and a, and a, um, a coming together of, of growing together and understanding and using the, the relationship in the best of all situations as a vehicle to wake up when both parties can use that relationship to wake up rather than to have all your needs fulfilled then you see that the natural course of things is going to be to um, to go through highs and lows and also to, um, to work through those so you can see the possibility of, of opening up from that, that contraction and fear. With um, spiritual practice, sometimes there's a shame that, that comes in addition uh, that it's, it's hard to talk about your difficulties with others who are who you think might have assumptions about how one should be in a spiritual path you know basically oh now we've got it together because we're spiritual people and there's a beautiful article I, I i don't think i'll get into it now but in the, in the current inquiring mind it's a it's a very inspiring and, and touching article by Susan Moon, who's the editor of um, uh, Turning Wheel, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship magazine, and also a tremendously funny person. She, she uh, is also, she goes by the name of Tofu Roshi and, uh, <laughs> and uh, has, uh, has a number of books. What was the, what's the main book? Uh, yeah, Life and Letters of Tofu Roshi. Just this fantastic sense of humor. But she also um, has bouts of depression. And uh, this article is not a humorous article. It's entitled, The Worst Zen Student That Ever Was, Reflections on Depression and Buddhist Practice. 
And she talks so honestly and openly um, about not only going through her periods of depression, but feeling shame that here she is, an advanced, quote, advanced Zen student, and not having it together. And knowing better here, but somehow not being able to to move through things and getting um, more and more lost and more and more ashamed because of that. Um, and while I think about it, one other uh, one other piece of information that I thought I'd share, particularly around around this um, recurring. Um, mm, difficulty in your spiritual relationship, your relationship with the Dharma, um, is our thoughts about where we are can create more of that same reality. And I um, have been very struck and impressed by this book, which I think is in the bookstore now. Uh, it's been in there in the past, Emotional Alchemy by Tara Bennett Goldman. Uh, she um, she and her husband, Dan, uh, Daniel Goldman, who wrote Emotional Intelligence, have done a lot of exploration into, uh, into healing and the mind. And this book is about working with the emotions in a practice, uh, in a mindful way that also incorporates some cognitive therapy. This is what she says. I find this really fascinating. I was touching on these... Um, intermittent descents into, into depression. It was, uh, she talks about a, a study uh, among those who became severely depressed. Um, and the study saw that often the first time depression was triggered by a traumatic experience. In fact, about 50% of the cases are triggered by an upsetting, upsetting or traumatic life event. Only 20% of second episodes of severe depression are triggered by an upsetting event. And just 10% of third episodes have triggering events. Life's provocations are the causes in progressively fewer relapses, Teasdale says, because depressing thoughts increasingly take on the power of actual setbacks and upsets and upsets in setting off relapses into depression. Such relapses can begin innocently enough when a bad mood reacts, reactivates the thought patterns that typify a previous episode of depression those thoughts trigger more foul moods in a downward spiral. What for others might be only a mild bout of the blues holds a special risk for those with a history of depression, as though those moods and thoughts were viruses to which they were especially susceptible. They're particularly vulnerable to thoughts which, if allowed to reverberate, can eventually lead to another descent into despair." The thoughts themselves become the trigger for the depressed feelings. So, if you've gone through this, say, fall from grace, and then after a while things change and you come back to your normal self or get re-inspired, the thought is if there starts to be a, a downward spiral or a downward thought where you go through a blue period, something happens that kind of, you know, upsets you. And then the thought, oh my goodness, I hope I'm not going back there. That in itself can lead you to that despair because your mind creates reality. You know, as the first line in the Dhammapada says, we are what we think. With our thoughts we make the world. And if you think, oh my goodness, I, I hope I'm not going down there again. In fact, that just makes that thought come alive. And the more you get frightened by it, the more you push it away, the more energy you can give it. As I often say, it's like somebody saying, don't think about a pink elephant right now. You know? Get it out of your mind. Okay? I don't want it there. Okay? 
boom, that's all that fills your mind. Whereas if you aren't troubled by the thought, if you, if you really understand the emptiness of those thoughts, they just come and they go. But that thought, oh my goodness, I hope that this doesn't mean, is the very thing that can lead us down. Now, it's important to understand something about the, the process of purification. This is often considered or spoken of as a process of purification. And that is, as you become more aware, well, you're not only going to become more aware of all the beauty and all the goodness and all the compassion and all the love that's inside, you're going to become more aware of all the fear, all the greed, all the judgment, all the anger, all the confusion that's inside as well. And that's just part of the package. You can't just say, oh, yes, let's get that love out here, you know, more compassion, yeah. Let's keep the rest of that. Who wants the rest of that stuff? I don't want that there. If you're going to be opening up to the totality of who you are, it means that you need to be ready and willing for everything to come out. And as you become more and more attuned and clear about just what is going on inside, you're going to see a lot of demons. You're going to see a lot of um, old patterns and tapes that you perhaps you know, would prefer not to see or wonder, you know, gosh, what's, what's the point of this? You know, sometimes when, when people start meditating, I teach a um, beginning class a number of times a year. I've been doing it for many, many years. And people, some people come in saying, gosh, this is great. And others are coming in saying, you know, I think I was better off before I started this stuff. You know? <laughs> I'm seeing a whole lot of stuff inside that's not a whole a lot of fun. And if you can, if, if they can understand that that is part of the process, being willing to open up and and experience it all, then it can be held in a different way. But this process of purification keeps on unfolding until you are a completely, a fully awakened being. Okay? So that means that you're always going to be learning new aspects of yourself that have remained hidden from complete wakeful consciousness. And I'd like to read to you a little bit from my first Bible, be here now, um, particularly around cycle, cycles of practice, what he calls the course of sadhana. Doing practice can be as much of a trap as any other melodrama. It is useful to have some perspective about the path in order to keep yourself from getting too caught up in the stage in which you're working. These pointers may help. Each stage that one can label must pass away. Even the labeling will ultimately pass. A person who says, I'm enlightened, probably isn't. The initial euphoria that comes through the first awakening into even a little consciousness, except in a very few cases, will pass away, leaving a sense of loss or a feeling of falling out of grace or despair. The Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross deals with this state. Practice is a bit like a roller coaster. Each new height is usually followed by a new low. Understanding this makes it a bit easier to ride with both phases. As you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you are getting more caught in the illusion. It's just that you are seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding, guarding the gates of the temples get fiercer as you proceed towards each inner temple. 
but of course the light is brighter too. It all becomes more intense because of the additional energy involved at each stage of practice. So, seeing this as a purification process can give us faith and confidence that we're not blowing it, we're not doing something wrong when we find ourselves back to where we were. I remember the first time uh, I did a long, uh, a long retreat, a three-month retreat. This was in 1976. And it was incredible. I got to a place of clarity and, and peace that I'd never experienced before. At the end of that retreat, they give some time to get back into the world, what's called Integration Week, or what also is called Disintegration Week, you know, <laughs> as you start conversing and connecting with others. And as soon as I opened up my mouth, judgment, paranoia, feeling really young, insecure, not knowing how I could even form the words, you know, and I went running to my teacher saying, it didn't work. Yeah. And uh, I had thought about asking for my money back. I didn't quite have the, the, the gumption to, to do that, you know. What's the point of this? I thought I was going to get fixed. And was reminded that it's not about doing away with those parts of ourselves. It's about opening up and learning to be with them in that same spacious awareness that you've been practicing for those, those months. So if you're trying to fix your personality so that it's not there anymore, <laughs> let go of that project. Okay? It's more a matter of learning to really come to terms with and love that perfect expression of life that is manifesting through your form. Okay? <clears throat> That's that's what the practice is about. Not fixing it up or doing away with it, but learning to use this, you know, the Buddha said, in this fathom-long body, the whole of the Dharma is revealed, using this as your laboratory to understand the human condition and its joys and its wisdom and its compassion and its confusions, its pain and fears. That this, as you can more understand this one and appreciate it and love it, because it is the expression of life as it's manifested perfectly through you, then the more you can truly come to a connection with others. The more you can truly be there and see somebody else's flaws, see somebody else's fears, and see somebody else's confusions, and say, yes, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be frightened. I know what it's like to be lost in rage. Got a little crap here. And in fact, it's a, it's a gift that you give to others when you learn to um, love all of those parts of yourself. Until you do, you're busy either denying or trying to, you know, uh, distract yourself and hopefully find the love that you've been looking for outside. Okay? And then when you see it in your face, when somebody's triggering off that fear or that confusion, you want to get away because it gets too close to home. But rather, if you can truly come to terms with your sufferings and your pains when the honeymoon is over or the relationship with your cushion gets really rough, what an incredible gift that you give to everybody else. Because as you can learn more and more to connect with that, you're not afraid to see it in others, and you can really be there for them in a whole other way. You know, when you're really lost and in confusion, it's not the people who want to take that away from you so that you can be all better that are healing, you know, the, the people who say, oh, I feel so terrible, what, how can we do to, what can we do to fix it, you know, what can we do to make things better for you, get out of that, snap out of it, you know. That's not very 
calming and, and healing. Whereas if somebody says, oh yeah, I've been there, that must, it's really hard. I'm with you and I care about you. Then there's that sense of connection. You're not so alone. And that's where the healing is. Just knowing that, just knowing that you're normal, <laughs> that you, you are going through what, what other people go through, what everybody goes through, um, can have that, that fear start to be dispelled. <clears throat> One thing that allows you to, um, to do this, particularly in terms of practice, is having a very consistent and clear comprehension of purpose, what's called clear comprehension of purpose in the teachings. Or it's very much like right aspiration, <coughs> one aspect of, of the Eightfold Path. Knowing that you have a commitment to wake up, for instance, that might be uh, one purpose, or a commitment to be present for everything as it unfolds in your life. A commitment to um, learn to love as best you can. A commitment to, um, to practice greater kindness or compassion. Whatever it is that's your juice, that's your motivation for practice, if you hold that as, um, as your intention, then it's said that when you have a strong, clear comprehension of purpose, then the, the relapses that you go through are held in that greater intention and in that greater vision. Not thinking, oh, well, I'll just, you know, what's the point? You know, who was I kidding? I'll just throw in the towel. But rather, okay, this is part of the process. And then every time you fall is a time that you can see how you fell and wake up again. And I'll read to you, uh, I can find it, one of my favorite passages. Right. Here it is. Some of you might have heard this before. I read it a lot. But this is really pointing to the process of opening, of purifying, and waking up. This is called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. It's by Portia Nelson. Chapter 1, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. <laughs> that is the process of waking up. And when she says, Chapter 3, I see it is there, I still fall in, it's a habit. My eyes are open, that is mindfulness, that is the intention to wake up. I know where I am, it is my fault. When she says it's my fault, not that, oh, I should beat myself up and blame myself, but realize I have a choice. I can take responsibility for this and I can get out and I can walk down another street. Whereas if you say, oh, shoot, how did I get in this mess? I can't believe I'm doing it again. You've just fallen in in another hole. And then you can't add it on another layer. I did it again. Sometimes with a judging mind, you know, when you're saying, in, out, and then you realize you've been gone, and you say, you know, oh, shoot, I was gone. And then you realize, oh, 
that was a judgment. I'm not supposed to be judging. <laughs> and then you say, oh, shoot, I just did it again. That was another judgment. And you could add on one la 15 layers of judgment until at some point you simply notice, oh, and there's judgment in the mind. And that is the doorway to freedom when you're not judging the judging. It's just doing what it does. And the same way when you're not angry with your anger or you're not confused by your confusion. You know, one of my favorite labels when I'm, I'm sitting on retreat and I have no idea what's going on. There's no way I could even put a handle on it. I put the whole thing into one big package and notice, oh, confusion. That's what's happening. And in that moment, I'm here again. You know, I'm clear. I might be clearly confused, but I'm clear about it. You know? <laughs> and that changes everything when you don't blame yourself for where you are. So I'll just say a few more words and then maybe we can have a discussion. Mindfulness is really the, the, the best strategy. Okay? Mindfulness of feeling Actually, if you are mindful of feeling your feelings, if there's pain, if there's fear, if there's sadness or whatever, oh, there's this aspect of the human experience. When you're not taking ownership of it, then you're simply experiencing part of the human condition. Okay? Oh, and it feels tight, it feels heavy, it feels swirling around in the mind, it feels contracted in the body. Oh. And you can become an explorer for the, the experience of sadness or fear or confusion. Oh, what does this feel like? You become an interested explorer in exploring the landscape. Then you don't have to be busy trying to get out of your hole. But if you find that you've fallen into that hole, okay, and you are then lost, oh, okay, lost and there's no way you can get a handle on it. One thing to do if you want to stay with the mindfulness practice is just come back to your body. No matter how lost you are, okay? When you're lost, you're in your head. If you can simply come back to your body, okay? And know that you're sitting here right now. Feel where your feet are, whether they're on the floor, or cross-legged, feel where your hands are, feel your, your body in the chair or on the floor. Just coming back to that fact cuts through, at least for a little while, that whole mind stream. And actually, when you're in those kind of um, down phases after the honeymoon, when you're in a cycle of despair, coming into your body is a very... Um, uh, essential aspect because we get lost in our heads and so doing things if, if meditating is just bringing back that kind of negative thinking doing things like yoga doing some exercise taking walks in nature getting back to another connection with life besides just the the mental um, can be a grounding device the Buddha talked about other ways besides mindfulness to deal with negativity and with distracting thoughts. He said, you can substitute a wholesome thought for an unwholesome thought. So, for instance, if you're going through a really hard period, doing loving-kindness practice, if that's accessible to you, that's, um, that's a, a classical antidote to fear and confusion. You know? changing your meditation to just metta. Or if sometimes metta is hard for you, then to compassion and just getting in touch with your own sincerity of heart. Finding some, something that inspires you, an inspirational book or a tape. You know, I spend you know, lots of time, if I'm getting, if I'm getting lost, mm, time to get a hit, you know, and open up to a, a book 
you know, and or play a tape. I, I started to say I've spent lots of time in the car, you know, listening to Dharma talks. Probably more Dharma talks in in the car than on retreats. And I've done a lot of retreats. Just okay, I need a little bit of another reality check here besides the one that my mind is is bringing me on. So inspiration, reminding you what you know. And then uh, the last thing I'll, I'll mention, we'll open up, is. Um, the reflection that the Buddha gave for practice as a support to intensive meditation practice or formal sitting practice, one of his, the, the main supports that he said to reflect on is impermanence. Okay. So while you're in the middle of a really tough period, you might reflect on all the other tough periods that you have gone through and that have come and gone and realize that everything changes, everything. The hard part is when you feel like you're stuck for good or for bad, you know, in the particular situation you're in. Uh-oh, this is it. Everything else might have worked up, up until, my life, until now in my life, but this time I've really gotten into a no-exit place. That's not so. And so the, the ongoing reflecting on impermanence gives us more um, confidence and courage to, to just be with what's here now in as skillful a way and realize this is as important a cycle in practice as experiencing the honeymoon. Probably at least as important or more important because you'll probably visit there again and you'll visit other people who are visiting there so as you learn more and more not to be frightened by those cycles then every part of your practice phase counts not just the good stuff so after the honeymoon there's the marriage and it's an ongoing relationship that we can appreciate appreciate the depth of and appreciate the fact that it's not needing to land in some final destination but it is an ongoing process until you are completely awakened. Okay, I think I'll stop here and uh, let's see if you'd use the the mic. Let's see if it's yeah. Hello. Oh. Now try it. Oh, hello. Yeah. There you yes. go. Go ahead, back there. Thanks. You mentioned about the, uh, if you have a problem with the Dharma, it's probably you, not the Dharma, mm -hmm. which made me think about the fact that uh, m many years ago when I was first uh, uh, introduced to Buddhism and meditation, uh, I had some introduction over at Green Gulch to, uh, let's say, the sutras. And then, and there's all this stuff about millions of bodhisattvas and worlds upon worlds. And I thought, what is this gobbledygook? And it really turned me off. And I've never been turned on to Buddhist writings since that time. And the same thing happened to me long before that with the Bible, where people would be saying that every word of the Bible that was written 1,500 years ago mm -hmm. is absolute gospel truth. And then they use this to persecute people, et cetera. What, can you help me with this? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, uh, uh, it's a very, it's a very good question. And the thing that hooked me around the Dharma and the Buddhist teachings, very simple. I wish I, I had a, a copy to to read a, a few lines of it. But in his um, in his response to this uh, these villagers, uh, the the Kalamas who he goes to and he's, he's spreading his teaching. And they say, you know, so many people have come through here saying they've got the truth. And now you say you've got the truth. You know, who do we believe? This, this causes a lot of doubt and uncertainty. And he says, it is fitting in times of uncertainty that you should doubt. It is fitting, Kalamas. And then he goes on to this long list. Basically, don't believe the teachers. Don't believe the scriptures, don't believe 
thoughts that you prefer. Don't believe anybody. Don't even believe the Buddha. Check out for yourself what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness. And when you know for yourselves, Kalamas, that this leads to suffering and unhealthy uh, states of mind, then abandon it. And if you know for yourself this leads to happiness and peace, then cultivate it. So he said very clearly, check out everything with a discriminating mind and see what resonates for you, use it, and if it doesn't resonate for you, then just what, have what's called, he didn't say this exactly, but, he, but the idea of having a suspension of disbelief, like, I don't know. I don't know about that. I do know that when I'm practicing kindness, it feels better. You know? I do know that when I am present, that there's a different relationship to reality. I do know that things change. Make it your own exploration and investigation, and you don't have to believe anybody or anything. That's, that's really what it comes down to. It's, a, it's an open-handed, in the chants it says, Ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. Don't, don't believe anybody else, but just look and see what's true for you. That's what hooked me. Do you get some? Do you personally get something from the sutras when they have all this fantastic talk, or how, how can you get something from it? Some things I get, I'm very inspired by, and some things um, I don't resonate with. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff in the in the texts which were written hundreds of years after the Buddha, because it was all all an oral tradition for a number of hundreds hundred years, um, that don't seem to me. <coughs> to resonate with the truth. I just put that aside. I don't know about that. But a lot of the, the, the texts and the, the, the discourses and the suttas, there's a ring of truth that is more oriented towards, um, towards awakening. And that I find great inspiration from. I don't think it's too much different than trying to read Shakespeare. Not, not too much different than trying to read Shakespeare. It's there. It's, it's okay. And so it, he says it's, it's there, but you've got to dig for it. Yeah, well, it's all a personal investigation. So I invite you. Here's... Here. Oh, sorry. Um, I, I can relate to uh, what this lady has spoken of, and I, I attribute it to a cultural aversion of uh, this is a, a different way, a different way of thinking. And, and I just see it as, as a difference in culture. And if I can open my mind to considering the possibilities of the wisdom that is underneath this different way of expression, then I've been able to go into the Dharma and, and see through that layer of, of cultural difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and part of it is just translations through you know, many centuries um, and leading up to, you know, some Victorian English translations and um, going through the cultural overlays. Part of it is whether or not it's the actual words of the Buddha or their commentaries, or, and part of it is stuff that might be, in fact, quite true that we're not ready yet to understand. So just keep that possibility in mind and not just reject out of hand, oh, well, this doesn't feel right, so I think I'll, you know, that, that's, that's a crock. Just be open to, you know, if things are, it's, if, it's, if, it's, if it's talking about, you know, being harmful or being mean or whatever, you know, then that, that probably doesn't have a ring of truth. If it's talking about stuff that, that's cosmologically in a, a model of, of the universe that that you can't quite grab your you know put your wrap your mind around whether it's karma or you know what happens over lifetimes or that kind of stuff just kind of put it on hold and say I don't know about that when I started out I didn't I couldn't relate to karma and rebirth and over lifetimes it just didn't make any sense to me and I didn't I didn't spend a whole lot of time trying to sort out whether it was right or not over the years 
I, I have had a different take on things. So you don't have to force anything. Just be right where you are. Um, the word or the concept that I got that You're I speaking. resonated with was when you talked about visiting places. Because uh -huh. I think for me, one of my major difficulties is that I don't really have such a deep concept of visiting. When I'm somewhere, I think, this is it. And I get stuck. On the other hand, and paradox has been really helpful for me, is that when I deeply allow myself to visit, when I surrender to the moment and the presence of that visit, then something really opens up that isn't so much about me, but just about that moment and that place and my presence there. And that frees me in some way that I cannot access through my rational mind or through going back to other experiences and memories and the ways it ought to be. Mm -hmm. And the peace, I recently went through an extremely difficult time, which I was totally convinced would not end. And the thing that helped me was when people somehow did not join me there, but sort of allowed me to be there without their having to be there too or to do anything. And I was so um, nurtured by the fact that they were somewhere else and that I could be so grateful that, thank God, they were somewhere else, <laughs> that, you know, I was lifted in some way that I could not understand, but what was very present for me. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah, that's well said. You also point to something, and that is when you allow yourself to be there, and not, not trying to get out of it. What you're doing besides recognizing what's here and accepting it, if you can bring investigation and inquiry saying, okay, what really is happening here? In that very act, you're not adding on more aversion. You can't say, okay, let's, let's feel this and hope that it goes away at the same time. And it, it, there's this little paradox that comes that you you um, remove the contraction and the aversion and then it's just what it is and there's a part of you the awareness that's ex investigating it is not caught in that confusion that which is aware of fear for instance is not afraid the awareness is larger than that and so you 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 begin to connect or identify more with the awareness and just okay let's feel this and that's that's the healing as well. And that's kind of like giving yourself just what you're looking. Oh, there's other people who aren't caught in this. The awareness isn't caught in it as well. So it's, that's one of the powers of, of practice. Yeah. Thank you. Back over there. I love this idea of acceptance um, and awareness uh, because... Um, I just see how it's so easy to get trapped in our habitual patterns of acting and reacting to any given situation. It always seems to be the same, and that's where it gets so tiresome. And there are days when I have the intention of not getting trapped or hoping that I won't get trapped and will accept. And this is just a, you know, this is like in the pettiness of life. And yesterday I was driving down to Carmel. And of course, you know, you get in traffic, and I just sometimes I go crazy. <laughs> I just can't stand. It. I go, why are, why are people so rude? Why do they have to be like this? And I get all caught up in this, and then I stop myself because I had the intention of trying to catch myself in these typical reactions. And I thought to myself, I am so lucky that I can even be driving down and that I'm capable of doing this. And so I looked at this situation that normally would frustrate me as a moment to be really grateful for the fact that I'm even capable of doing this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And that's, that's another very powerful reflection, gratitude, instead mm -hmm. of seeing what's wrong, just yeah. getting in touch with all your blessings. Yeah, switching from the negative to the positive. Yeah, yeah. It's hard when you're in the middle of that, that oh. negative role, <laughs> yeah. but it, it can also be a practice where you, where you look through a, a different lens. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a few more up here. Right. Uh, I have been getting some phone calls um, where who's ever calling me is like just pressing on the dials, like, mm, 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 like just to give me an, an annoying phone call. And of course, in my head, I was thinking that who it could be. So it's been kind of intriguing. 
And then uh, there have been a couple of times when um, I felt annoyance come up and anger inside myself when this happens. I call in for messages, and lo and behold, it's that phantom again uh, giving me that phony phone call, I guess. I used to call them when I was a kid, phony phone calls. And uh, one time I, I started sending the person meta. You know, I started sending the person meta. May you be uh, happy. May you be uh, s safe from danger. And I sent myself meta. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was, I was starting to feel compassion for the person. You know, the, the person's doing this. It must be a reason. This revenge or whatever isn't like me. Or <laughs> maybe they have a crush on me. I don't know what, mm -hmm. I really don't know. But uh, it's so easy to get lost in the fantasy about who's calling me. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I recently ended a relationship uh, about five weeks ago, so right away it's this person doing it, and it's this other person who who uh, uh, wanted to be my handyman, and he didn't show up, and uh, I I told him that I got somebody else, and he had a fit on the phone with me, and I'm thinking it's him, <laughs> you know. So it's really I don't know who it is, okay. and uh, every time it comes up, you know, I like I going through. A tough mood, or if you're in a, a tough cycle, see if there's a possibility of relating to it a, in a way that's going to, um, that's not fighting it and not being drowned in it, but simply uh, acknowledging and exploring, investigating if the mindfulness is strong enough, and if it's not, to turn your attention to. Uh, other ways to to relate like with gratitude or like with getting some grounding uh, in your body yoga or going for walks and but the main thing is not to think oh I've fallen from grace and I'm not gonna ever come back just okay this isn't this is part of life this is a cycle that I'm in just right now and who knows in five hours from now it might change but not that you're hoping that it'll change but just being open to things as they are and letting them just move through in a natural way. Okay, so as you sit here, feel your body, feel your heart center in your body, and let yourself breathe through your heart center. Breathe in benevolent energy from around you and let it touch your heart and fill your being. And as you breathe out, surround yourself with this energy and extend it outwards. and get in touch with your own sincerity of heart as you send some kind thoughts to yourself. May I be happy in my life. May I have peace. May I hold my confusions with compassion. May I feel the love that's inside and express it well. And may I see things clearly. And then extending these same thoughts to everyone here and throughout these grounds, people sitting up on top in the retreat center, retreat area, and all the animals on the land, and continuing to spread out to all beings in all directions. As I want happiness, may all 
beings have happiness in their lives. As I want peace, may all have peace. May all see through their confusion and hold it with compassion. May all express their love well. May all see things clearly and see their true nature. This talk was given by James Barris at Berkeley Sitting Group on July 18, 2001. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.